welcome to Forever Young Adult, a podcast where I, Aoife, and I, Kira, talk about young adult fiction from history. This book, see, I know what book Eva's going to do, and we haven't said it to you yet, but... I mean, it's in the title. It's in the title. We keep being like, you don't know what book we're doing, but it's in the title. This is like every Doctor Who episode with Daleks in it. They always say Dalek. It's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And then they're like, surprise, you didn't know about the Daleks. And I'm like, the episode is called Return of the Daleks. I <laughs> yeah. I figured it out. Um, also, okay, this is a tangent on a tangent, but doesn't Dalek sound like something you'd buy in Ikea? Yes, I agree. <laughs> cool. the, the guy in the boss man of Ikea is dyslexic and that's why everything has a name because he couldn't be dealing with um, random numbers for everything. And I'm like, I respect that. I love that. Side tangent. Yeah, this book's over 200 years old. <laughs> so it was written before young adult was a, was a category of book. Because I think 200 years ago, they just had books. At some point, they, they invented children's literature. And I think this was before then. Northanger Abbey is definitely a coming-of-age book. And it was definitely always a coming-of-age book. It is 100% a YA book. Even if, you know, when it was written, it wasn't billed as such. Because, yeah, the advent of YA as a genre really started with S.E. Hilton's Outsiders and has been curated and maintained by booksellers and librarians like yourself since but yeah no i'm just making the point that this book is a ya but it is not like a traditional written with young adults directly in mind i can't remember what age jane austen was when she wrote this but she did write with women in mind she did yeah which was also unusual for the time it was i might give a little bit of background not so much exactly on jane austen's life but on jane austen's life as it pertains to the writing of this book because I think most people kind of Mm -hmm. know Jane Austen was a writer. She wrote in the late 1700s and early 1800s. She she died at the age of 41 in 1817. Mm -hmm. This book was published posthumously, except actually there are letters between her and her sister where she discusses having finished drafts of this book in 1798, when she would have been under 20 herself. She then tried to get it published in 1803 and actually a really shitty thing happened with the publisher where they wouldn't publish it but they also wouldn't give her the manuscript back so she couldn't bring it to another publisher yeah so she had to like fight with them about that for like nearly 15 years her brother helped her get it back in 1816 and she did a few more rewrites on it before she died in July 1817 And then her brother published this for her at the very end of 1817 slash early 1818, you know, six months after she died. But yeah, shitty publishers. Most publishers are good, but some are shitty. And that's the same in every industry. (laughs) And they didn't have agents and she was a woman. So she had to have her brother go to London and sign paperwork for her because she wasn't allowed to. Why did women just like not leave their partners if their partners were awful back in the past? I don't know. Maybe because they couldn't sign anything? Huh? Yeah. (laughs) Sorry. Tangent. It kind of isn't though, because 
one thing that comes across a lot in Jane Austen's writing, mm-hmm. like you said, she wrote for women and a lot of her books these days are considered like romance novels, but they're sort of not like they are. And they're often like about idealized relationships where, you know, women get partners who they fall in love with. And they're also like nice, steady providers who they'll have good lives with. But Jane Austen really wrote about society and the concerns of women. And that just happened to be largely about marriage because marriage was kind of... That was the number one issue at the time. Like, it was a massive issue at the time because if you can't... If all of your wealth and stability and everything comes from the fact that you are married to a man, then then that is the number one pressing issue. Finding a good husband who will stick by you and provide for you and help you through society is your number one concern. It's also the reason why like everyone's like, oh, women just want jewelry and sparkly things. And it's like, yeah, women weren't allowed to have bank accounts or money of their own. So if things get, got tight, they could sell the jewelry and the sparkly things. That's mm-hmm. why they wanted them. They were physical money (laughs) yeah I had a conversation just before we came upstairs to record with my partner who's a historian and knows a lot more about the Regency period which is when Jane Austen wrote because I was kind of just reflecting on how I'm going to be talking about this book as a YA book right Mm -hmm. and our protagonist is 17 and her love interest is 26 So in a modern book, obviously, that would put up a bunch of red flags and we'd be quite concerned about it. And I don't want to imply that the power difference between a 26-year-old and a 17-year-old wasn't also a thing in, you know, 1803. But the power difference between a man and a woman was so very significant that the power difference between you know, over 10 years, age difference is actually very negligible. Like by sheer reality that Jane Austen's writing about relationships between men and women, like her heroines are already at an enormous power disadvantage. And so the the way in that time that women could have something bordering on uh, equitable relationship with their partner would be to be independently wealthy. Uh, As you've rightly pointed out, most people weren't. Most estates were entailed to a male heir. But in Emma, for example, Jane Austen writes about a character who is independently wealthy and secure, and she's going to inherit her father's estate. So she's completely free to marry if she wants to for love. But that's not something any of Austin's other heroines get to do so most of her other books are about learning about a guy <laughs> uh, enough to figure out whether he's a good bet like in in Pride and Prejudice a lot of people joke that Elizabeth only likes Darcy after she goes to his house and sees what a nice house he has but the reality is that she sees what a good landlord he is she sees that he's a sensible manager of the lands he owns like everyone around there likes him and she now has a reason to trust him because before that she had no reason to trust him a man can be charming but that doesn't mean 
he's going to be a good bet. A lot of the other romances Austen writes involve someone that the protagonist knew for a long time or someone who's kind of very close to them, like not family, but in a very intimate social circle. Because then again, you've got enough knowledge of him to be sure about his capacity. And you also know that like he won't treat you badly because if he treats you badly, your dad will notice and he'll get mad. Like. And he can't lose that social standing. That mm-hmm. kind of thing is really important. But uh, the protagonist of our current book knows shit all about that. <laughs> uh, you said that she's really sheltered. Is that does, does her family not participate in the society? Yeah, I assume. I assume she is of like she is of a well-to-do family. Somewhat. So Catherine is one of ten kids. That's too many. Yeah. And her dad was <laughs> her dad was already like kind of landed gentry, but like the very lowest rung. So he is he's technically like upper class in that like in some kind of way he's related to some lord or something. But like mm-hmm. he doesn't have an estate, he doesn't have anything. Their family background is actually quite similar to Austin's, where he is a vicar, essentially. So he gets to live in the vicarage, Mm -hmm. but only so long as he's the vicar. And if he stops being the vicar, he doesn't get that house anymore. Because the new Uh, vicar moves in. Yeah. And he's got 10 kids. So Catherine's the oldest girl, but she has older brothers and they're both in college because both of them will have to work, which is, Mm -hmm. which indicates that they are, while not poor obviously they're not like tradesmen or anything they're gonna have to work for a living like her brothers are gonna be lawyers or barristers or like politicians or or like in the army or navy or something like that they won't just be managing the land no because there's no land to manage there is no land so she's they're not wealthy enough to participate very much in social society uh she's the oldest girl so her mom doesn't really know what to do with her. Like her brothers went off to college, but Catherine kind of gets educated at home. And like, because there's no older girls to be like, I want to go out to the ball. Why don't I get a fancy dress? Catherine just kind of tips along as a tomboy, like running wild in the woods. There's, there's no daughter to practice on before we get to Catherine. Catherine yeah. is the practice daughter, which yeah. is hilarious to me personally because my sister is Catherine, but I was the practice child. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in as much as in as much as like the first child is the child that you're like, oh no, what'll happen if they fall? Oh no, oh no, oh no. Discos, oh no. And then by the time Catherine came along, they were like, oh, Kira's done those things. We it's fine. It's fine. She could we we know the routine now. New experiences yeah. are scary. <laughs> So Catherine has lived in a nice, quiet vicarage with her, like, two older brothers and, like, seven younger siblings who she sort of helps her mom raise. And she's not very smart. She's not great at school. She's mostly a tomboy. She loves to play cricket. But then she discovers gothic novels. Oh, God. So a major theme in this book is Austin talking about how reading can actually be really good for you mm-hmm. because it can help you improve as a person and learn more about the world. 
and you know it's entertaining and it keeps your mind active but it also you also need to learn how to read critically and at the start of the book Catherine hasn't because she lives in a nice quiet place and all of her knowledge of the world outside of her nice quiet place is like stuff from Mysteries of Udolpho by Anne Radcliffe where it's you know heroines in low-cut night dresses holding guttering candelabras as they run through like gothic castles because there's some horrendous lord chasing after them and a wife in the attic and she just thinks that's what the world's like outside of her village oh god so like books can be uh, educational and they can teach you about different social situations that you haven't yet experienced but they can also be misleading because if you went if you went purely on the books that like that I read, there will be a lot more um, family secrets in my family that I have to um, unearth in my mid-30s while my husband is doing something mischievous and unknowing. Might be having an affair, might be hiding a child, who knows, but there's something happening and my suspicions about him have led me to question things that my mother told me as a child and I also have a lot of repressed memories that I didn't know about until right now. That is um, every that is every suspense family drama that I read. <laughs> yeah, that. <laughs> if if we were thinking that the world was like the books I read, there would be a lot more like vampires. There would be a lot more demons, creatures. You know, honestly, not very unlike the ones Catherine's thinking of. <laughs> <laughs> is but, that why you identified so strongly with this with this main character? I don't identify with this character, but I love her. Um, It's very fun. So anyone who knows a little bit about Jane Austen's style knows she's a very astute observer of like human, humans and human interactions. And she's very funny and she's constantly like scathing. In fact, she wrote like thousands of letters in her life, but all except like 160 were burned by her sister after her death because the sister was like I love my sister very much for the good of our family and her reputation I need to burn all these letters because she's such a bitch amazing I want to be Uh, such a bitch that everyone burns my letters so so Jane Austen takes all of that scathing energy and both satirizes gothic novels and satirizes the moralistic panic of people thinking that young girls shouldn't read gothic novels because they're bad for them. Okay, interesting. It is. Um, So the actual meat of the book in terms of plot isn't very complicated. It's that Catherine has been living this isolated life. Um, Mm -hmm. Her older neighbors, the Allens, are going to go to Bath for the fashionable season, which is just after Christmas. They're heading to Bath because Mr. Allen has gout and he needs to get treated. Yeah, because all of their houses are lined with lead. I don't think that's what causes gout. I think gout is uh, overindulgence, eating fancy food. Actually, you're right. Gout gout is overindulgence Um, because I think it's just like a fancy word for diabetes. Sort of. My granny got gout, actually, a year or two ago, which was very funny. And we were making fun of her for like, oh, you need to start 
you know, not drinking so much port and all those great hog dinners or whatever. But she does have type 2 diabetes. <laughs> um, no, I'm thinking of all the people that went to the seaside to, for, for their recovery. And it was like, oh, yeah, your house was lined with lead. And then when you stopped, when you went and you like stopped being somewhere lined with lead, you felt better. That's shocking information. Mm. In Jane Austen times, it was fashionable to spend the summer in the countryside and the winter in the town. So the Mm -hmm. Allens are doing what's fashionable while also going to get treatment for Mr. Allen's gout. But Mrs. Allen is like, I'm going to be so bored. So she talks to the Morelands about Catherine coming to just be her companion while her husband's getting his treatment in Bath. And Catherine's like, of course, I'd love to. So she just, uh, she goes to Bath with her older neighbours to kind of just hang out and be fashionable and go to some balls and see what the world is like. And what is the world like? Well, immediately we get Jane Austen being her amazing bitchy self because... You know, Catherine's like expecting that her mother will take her aside and give her instructions. Like, she wants her mother to be warning her against all those dark lords who will have nefarious desires, who might prey upon vulnerable young women. And you have to be so careful out there in the world, Catherine. It's so very terrifying. But instead, her mother's a sensible woman who's like, listen, don't get caught out without a coat. You need to wear layers, not just one big jacket. You need smaller layers. You need a scarf to create the seal between your coat. And like you, (laughs) very important. Don't get a cold. Keep warm in the city, my love. Yep. (laughs) Amazing. Also, like, because she is one of 10 children and there are a series of girls, I'm also like, that mom is probably like, go get a husband. Like, I don't really care about his standing or whatever. Just wear a coat and come back engaged (laughs) well I don't want to spoil it (laughs) (laughs) oh the regency era the first person who Catherine Moreland meets in Bath she and Mrs Allen go out to a, a like a ball and Catherine's immediately kind of disappointed because it's not like how she imagined them from the books because it's kind of crowded and like they're kind of just sitting there like I wish we knew people here and then a young man called Henry Tilney turns up come on Henry and Henry is nothing like a gothic hero at all he is a slightly patronizing very sarcastic normal dude like the first time he dances with Catherine you know you're meant to make small talk but they're just chatting about random shit and then he's like oh gosh there's only five minutes left in this dance I suppose we better do our duties and Catherine's like I don't know what you mean so he says well I need to ask you how long you've been in Bath and you need to say and she says about a week and he's like wonderful and then I'll say have you gone to the theatre and she's like no he's like oh have you gone to the sea have you gone to the pump rooms and how are you finding it you will say it's and she's like oh it's very good he's like exactly perfect I kind of love this man because that's exactly how I want to do flirting which is we talk shit and then we're like oh shit we're not talking the right shit but I didn't realize the small talk had 
precise rules about what you could and couldn't chat about. It, there are certain expectations when a young man like invites a young lady to dance about how they, they will speak. And they just, yeah, have quite a nice time. He's quite a nice dude. And I, I love this checklist conversation. I would be so much better at conversation if it followed a prescribed checklist in this mm. manner. You can do that. Have you never like... I can envision this unfolding in like a modern office or something where like you're chatting to one of your friends from work and you know you're just having a normal conversation but then you think oh gosh I forgot and how was your weekend oh did you get out in the weather ah and you know you know there's awful ice on the roads wasn't there traffic coming in okay when you phrase it like that yes there are rules to conversation that I am obeying right now I'm not going to go into too much depth about like the intricacies of what happens in Bath, but essentially, you know, Catherine meets Henry mm-hmm. and it's really nice. And she feels, oh, great. I've got a person to talk to occasionally at these things. Wasn't he so lovely? And then she doesn't see him again for a little bit. And she meets Isabella Thorpe, who is the child of Mrs. Allen's childhood friend by sheer happenstance and isn't it a great coincidence Catherine's older brother James comes into town with Isabella's brother John Thorpe oh my god they're best friends and so then Catherine is spending a lot of time with the Thorpes and her brother and she has this really weird situation where she's like Everyone tells me that John Thorpe is a fine person and there's nothing wrong with him. So he must be a fine person and there's nothing wrong with him. But I just don't like talking to him. I have an unpleasant time talking to him. What's with that? Hmm. Could it be because he's actually an unpleasant person? Yeah. And he's always exaggerating so much. Mm. And Catherine's really confused by that because he'll do things like say, you know, we must have done 70 kilometers in like an hour. We are so fast. It was amazing. And her brother, James, will be like, oh, no, I think we actually only did like 30, 30 miles in that time. And... (laughs) John Thorpe would be like, no, of course, because I know this horse and my horse is amazing and my horse goes this fast. But James Moreland will be like, but I did see a 30 mile marker. So (laughs) I'm like fairly sure it was only 30 miles. But Thorpe will be like, no, 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 no. There's no way. My horse is the fastest horse in the world. And, you know, it's amazing. I got him for no money at all. The guy I bought him from, he's a good friend of mine, but he's an absolute fucking idiot. He's an idiot. He thought he was getting a good price for this horse, but he didn't know what a good horse it was. I paid no money for this best horse in the world. And anyone looking at the horse would be like, that's a fine average horse (laughs) that you got for an average price from an average person if anything you might have overpaid for that average (laughs) (laughs) yeah see you're copping on a lot quicker than Catherine because well Catherine has a bad feeling in her gut so I think that she's doing just fine (laughs) uh you said he is he in his 20s no 
men in this in this in this time period have too much power because this boy needs a smack. I don't I don't support violence and I don't think that like a smack is like the best way of teaching every single person a lesson, but this boy he's rude to his mom. He's rude to his mom, not marriage material. So obviously Catherine's fairly clueless. But what mm-hmm. James and the Thorpes think is happening is that Catherine and James and Isabella and John are going on a bunch of double dates where Isabella's <laughs> dating James and Catherine is dating John. And like they're both. Is Isabella actually dating James though? A little bit, yeah. Okay. Isabella's just as exaggerating as her brother, where she'll talk on and on about how she's like. Catherine is the best friend I've ever had in my whole life and aren't you so amazing and John is so perfect and I love him so much and like you know of course I would be perfectly happy with him even if we were dirt poor it wouldn't mean anything to me of course you never would be dirt poor because you guys must be very wealthy right but anyway I love him so much Mm -hmm. and so sincerely and we already feel like sisters and won't it be so great when we can be actually sisters and Catherine's like uh yeah sure but also, we are not rich people. Mm-hmm. Uh, does, does Isabella find that out? And is it a problem? So, is the- this book has is in mostly two sections. Where the first okay. section is in Bath. And then the second section is when Henry Tilney and his sister Eleanor come back to Bath. And Catherine spends a bit of time with them and has a lovely time and eventually they're like unfortunately we can't stay in Bath much longer Catherine's really disappointed but then Eleanor says how would you feel about coming to stay with me and my brother at our house Northanger Abbey for a few weeks Mm, where the wife will be in the attic Mm -hmm. the second part of the book takes place in Northanger (laughs) Abbey but yeah just before they head off from Bath, James and Isabella get engaged. James heads up home to officially get permission from his dad and learn about like what kind of income they can get. And the dad's like, so happy, can't wait to meet this lovely young lady. I'm going to give you this amount of money and a lodge on this piece of land, but you're going to have to wait two and a half years because I don't, you're not old enough to inherit it at the moment. And... Isabella's immediately like, well, of course I love James very much and I'd be so happy even if we are dirt poor, but it's just so strange. Do you think your parents don't like me? The fact that they're giving us such a small amount of money. Of course, I don't actually mind the money. It's just the two and a half year wait because I love your brother so much. I get married to him tomorrow. Hint, 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 hint. (laughs) See, I can't feel bad for her because I'm like... She needs a good match. Yeah. But I'm also like, babe, this isn't, I don't know if this is the match for you. So what's, what's happened, and we don't really figure this out until the end of the novel, is you know how John Thorpe exaggerates constantly? Yes. Well, James Moreland's his friend. So he wants everyone to be really impressed with James. So he talks about how his dad has this great bit of land on a vicarage up in the countryside and he doesn't mention the number of kids and he might just kind of inflate their income a bit and then he also mentions that there's these near 
by neighbors, the Allens, who don't have an heir. So like one of the kids from the Morelands is almost definitely going to inherit their estate. And it might be Catherine or it might be James because they're so close with the Allens. Any time now they're going to be announcing their official heir. And, you know, the Morelands are just so very wealthy. And look at my very impressive friends. And he's tricked his sister with this, unfortunately. So when James is like, uh, actually, we don't have all that much. She's like, oh, you're so modest because my brother has told me the true situation. And oh, no. And then James, I is, see. James is doing the I'm so happy that my dad has said that we can have this much money to live on. And Isabella's like, uh, I can't be mean about your dad to your face. But what a fucking insult. Oh, my God. Yeah, we. I can't believe your dad has so much money and he's only giving us X amount of money. He should be giving us X times two amount of money. X times 10, honestly. Times 10? No! Yeah. I'm so stressed. Now we're going to talk about the Tilneys, the family Tilneys. So the Thorpes and the Tilneys are like completely at war over Catherine's time and affection because they're trying to do, the Thorpes are trying to do this double dating thing and they really want... Mm-hmm. Catherine to love John and you know Isabella is friends with Catherine but it's also like you know what an advantageous match this would be how wonderful it would be but the Tilneys are just nice Henry's just Mm -hmm. nice and his sister Eleanor is just a little bit lonely because she spends most of her time up in Northanger Abbey with her dad General Tilney and you know her brother Henry actually already is uh vicar and he already lives in a mm-hmm. vicarage like a few miles away so he visits when he can but you know Eleanor spends most of her time alone or like with her dad and who's kind of annoying so you know when Hel- when Henry brings Eleanor to town he's like this is Catherine she's this lovely girl I was talking to I think you guys will get on really well and they do and they have a nice time and Eleanor's a lot more sincere than Isabella, which Catherine kind of doesn't realize at first because she doesn't realize what an insincere person is like. Uh-huh. Um, but, you know, towards the end of their time in Bath, it's it's like Eleanor and Henry she'll go to when she's like, I don't know, Isabella said some really confusing things because she seemed really happy about about getting engaged to James but then she was also like really upset about something and I can't I can't figure out what it is because she said she's not upset about the money but she appears to be upset about the money I don't understand (gasps) oh double speak eh yeah um so I'm gonna I'm gonna spoil some stuff for context that we don't get Mm -hmm. really until the end of the book because let's be real this book is 200 years old and if you're gonna read it you're gonna love it anyway So John Thorpe talks to the Tilney's dad. Okay. And, you know, General Tilney says, who is this young woman who's friends with my daughter, who my son seems to like so much? What's she like? And John is like on the high of his sister being engaged to the family and thinking, you know, he's going to marry Catherine any day now. And he says, they're this insanely wealthy family from the countryside and they have this much land and this much money. And they're so well got in the community and everyone loves them. And Catherine herself is basically the heir to Mr. Allen, who is 
10 times more impressive than Mr. Allen actually is. And what a fine young woman she is. She has all of these great attributes and she's amazing. And so General Tilney's like, interesting. And when his daughter suggests that maybe she could have a bit of companionship by Catherine coming to join them for a few weeks at home, if, mm-hmm. you know, her family are okay with it and her guardians, the Allens are okay with it, General Tilney's like, Yes, you can bring an extremely wealthy heiress to spend time with you and my very single available son. Yeah, do it. Do do that. Mm -hmm. Big fan of that. Mm -hmm. And so she goes to Northanger Abbey and like she has the same problem with General Tilney as she has with John Thorpe, where everyone's like, well, he's a fine man of great reputation and he's very wealthy and he's you know he's so impressive she's like but that's weird because like when I spend time with him I don't have fun (laughs) and (laughs) I love his kids and they're great but they don't say nice things about him and whenever I spend time with just his kids the three of us have a great time but if General Tilney's there my friends are way less happy and I have a less good time but but everyone said General Tilney's a great dude so what could it possibly be? She's a little bit, a little bit slow on the up. Has she never had a friend before? No, because she's the oldest girl in her family. The moment her brothers get a little bit worldly, they're away in college having worldly friends, you know? I like, they're just like no other children in the estate area where she grew up. That's my main thing. Cause I'm like, has she never spoken to another person in order to learn these social cues before now is she learning every social socialness that she's ever learned right now at 17 years of age it certainly seems to be that way like I said she was kind of a tomboy who spent most of her childhood like running around playing cricket with her siblings and she wasn't too good at school but then at one summer she found gothic literature and now she's applying all of these scripts for gothic literature to social interactions because all else she knows is being a little bit dim and playing cricket. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. I'll, I'll allow so, it. <laughs> so then halfway to Northanger Abbey, Henry starts teasing Catherine because Catherine's like, I'm so excited to go to an abbey. It's going to be so cool. And, you know, Henry's talked to her about literature Mm -hmm. before. So he starts saying things like, oh, of course, you'll think that it's a fine place at first (laughs) because it's so imposing with all of the towers and the stained glass windows, which are so high and arched. And you will think how marvelous and beautiful a place. But of course, its splendor is crumbling (laughs) and there are parts of it which are totally uninhabitable. A great ruin that no one should go running through at night in the dark. And you will be led by our single old like servant Theodosia <laughs> to a distant suite of rooms which the family never uses, which is bitterly cold, despite the fire lit in the grate. And there will be like tapestries on the wall and dark shadowed corners. And you'll start to feel a breeze where there shouldn't be a breeze because the windows are closed, even though the family never uses this wing. Did you hear footsteps in the dead of night? So he's just playing with her. Absolutely. And Catherine's kind of like, and then what happens? 
And at a certain point, he just breaks down laughing and she realizes she's been a bit foolish. And he's like, no, we have a normal house. This is a normal house for normal people. And, you know, when they do turn up on the house, she's like, oh, there's no great gate that rattled as we unlocked (laughs) it and opened it. And like no lightning came down. And it is just a nice-ish modern house, parts of which used to be an old abbey, but like mostly just the stables remain and the rest of it's been rebuilt. And it's just a normal house. How disappointing. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And yeah, this is just continuing. The whole arc of the book is about Catherine getting a bit more cop on like her first night in this house there's like a chest of drawers in her bedroom which she can't lift because it's so heavy and it like the lid won't open and like she she tries rooting in it but then like Eleanor pops by and is like oh is everything okay and Catherine takes a second to be like oh fuck I'm being really rude <laughs> Because this is just the box in someone's house. And like, it's not my box. This is just the spare, it's the spare bedroom. You have a chest of drawers in it. You keep the spare linens in it. It's nothing. Oh, I love her. And one time in the dead of night, she tries to investigate this, this chest. But then she felt so like there must be a dark secret in there that she had to check again. And she finds a... A, a roll of old parchment but she can't she can't read it because the fire has died down and there's no <laughs> light so she has to hold it and wait until morning when there might be enough light to read it but then she falls asleep <laughs> and when she wakes up the next day it is a receipt from like a laundry woman <laughs> for, for for cleaning all the like fabrics in the room that's exactly what it should be it should just be. Yeah. But does it have a secret meaning? Actually, at the end of the book, it turns out it does. <laughs> <laughs> the rest of her time spent at Northanger Abbey is like a weird situation where General Tilney will keep like being very affable, but also like hovering. So he'll do things like say, you girls should really go for a walk along the grounds. Of course, you could go at any time. That would be fine. Of course, I usually go for my walk in the morning. You'll probably be happiest if you join me for my morning walk, right? Because we don't know if it'll rain later. So you should definitely join me for my my morning walk, right? And Catherine will like say really guiltily to Eleanor, like, I think, I think he's he's doing a lot of work to try make us happy and comfortable but I don't know where he got the idea that we'd be happier going for a walk in the morning because you know I'd actually have preferred the afternoon but since he went at such lengths to explain why he thought he'd be we'd be happier if we did the morning it, it feels so rude not to and like Eleanor who knows her dad is just like no <laughs> he didn't want to change his schedule He wanted to show you all the great greenhouses we had so he could brag about it and make you want to marry Henry more. But Catherine just cannot compute (laughs) this. People have their own motivations? That's nonsense. Why would he say a thing that that wasn't true? (laughs) I don't... I don't understand. This poor girl. Honestly. Yeah. She's she spends a little bit of time 
in Northanger Abbey with Eleanor and she develops enough cop on to at some point be like, hey, should I head home soon? And Eleanor's like, what? No, you shouldn't. I'd love to have you still be here. But Catherine's like, you might be just saying that to be polite. I know that I've been in your house for like three weeks now and that's kind of a long visit. And while I'm having a lovely time, which I'll say in a guarded way so that you don't feel you've got pressure to keep me on longer than you want to. Um, if you've got more stuff to get along with, I'm quite happy. I'm quite happy to head off. Mm-hmm. You know, we can still write letters. We're still good friends. And they have this discussion, which is one of the most mature discussions that Catherine has in the whole book. And they decide, you know, no, we'd like to have you on a little bit longer. And then General Tilney returns from a trip in the dead of night, summons Eleanor, shouts at her for a bit outside of Catherine's earshot where she cannot know what's being said. And then Eleanor comes to her room in the dead of night and says, I'm so sorry, dad says you have to leave. Has he found out that she is not rich and wealthy? What's happened is he went on a trip to London where he ran into John Thorpe again. Mm -hmm. And at this point... Isabella's cut off her engagement with James because she's so disappointed with him being poor and not that it mattered to her. No, it never mattered to her. And she she uh she writes a letter to Catherine then like a week later saying how upset she is that somehow things have been miscommunicated and James doesn't want to marry her anymore and if Catherine could just talk to her parents and explain the situation which is that there was a great misunderstanding where you know James just thought that she was was engaged to another fellow and so he thought that she'd cut off their engagement but actually she was never engaged to this other fellow because you know he wasn't interested in her anyway but more importantly James is the love of her life. And Catherine reads this and is a bit unhappy and doesn't really understand. But then she talks it over with Eleanor and Henry and realizes Isabella's lying and she doesn't like it. And she thinks maybe even though Isabella was such a nice friend to her, maybe she was mean to her brother. Mm. And that's that's not very nice. And she doesn't actually have to write back, even though Isabella asked her to. And she doesn't actually even need to pass it on to her parents because it would upset them and it's not fair so that's happened and then general tilney runs into john thorpe in town and now catherine morland instead of being his soon-to-be fiance uh from who's also the sister of his best friend who's engaged to thorpe's sister and they're all going to be very happy and wealthy together instead she's the sister of his best friend who insulted his sister by not giving them any money to live on. And Catherine is the one who practically got engaged to him, but then ran away out of town with another young man to stay with his family. And she did the insult of not writing his sister back. Oh my goodness. So now, instead of being, you know, the wealthy soon-to-be heiress of the Allenses, she's... This filthy, unwashed child from a horde of children. There must be 15 or 20 of them. And the parents actually have no money. And, you know, the Allens don't even like her anymore. And I found out that actually the Allens estate is entailed. So it has to stay within the Allen family. So it's going to go to a distant cousin anyway. (laughs) And there's... Because... Not like how I told you previously. 
<laughs> no, it's actually the worst. And you know, I heard that no one likes them in their neighborhood. They're actually horrible people. And everyone who knows them thinks they're awful. And it's amazing that they managed to swindle me and my sister so well when they're such a family of ill repute and they're manipulative and they're greedy. And I think they might even steal things. Oh my goodness. So he's run home to count the silverware and shouted his daughter for having this terrible person in his home. Yeah. Cool, 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 cool. And what he actually does then is really, really a monstrous thing for the time, uh, which is he he kicks Catherine out and leaves her to get home on her own. And that is a journey of 70 miles or 110 kilometers. really terrible because how, how is she going to do that? So there is public transport. There's a postal system, essentially, and people can get rides on the post vans essentially well you know the post carriages so it's kind of like a bus network or whatever but Catherine doesn't even have any money it doesn't occur to her that she might need money to get back until like Eleanor comes to her and is like hey by the way my dad's kicking you out I'm so sorry and also do you have enough money to get home at which point like Catherine checks and realizes she doesn't and Eleanor lends her some money oh sweet child so this girl who up till three months ago has never been alone in her life Mm -hmm. or independent in her life has had to travel a full day's travel on her own on buses uh where she doesn't have like it's described that she knows the village she's going to but she doesn't know any of the connecting like towns on the way so she has to like rely on the kindness of these post people to to help her and let her know when the next one is and it's only that you know she's a nice quiet polite young lady who seems quite lost that everyone's happy to help her but it's it's a 12-hour journey obviously because she's taking the post vans there isn't enough time for her to write ahead for someone to get her she doesn't have like there, there's no time to make any arrangements. It's a really cruel and actually dangerous thing that he does by kicking her out in this way. Yeah, I don't like him. That's my um, no. That is my revolutionary take on this. He's a he's a bad man. It's kind of fun because he's a really bad man, yeah. right? And this is the closest to like an act of gothic villainy that we get in the whole book. But by the time it happens. Catherine's sort of grown out of seeing everything through the lens of the the gothic novel. Like, obviously, initially, she thinks, General Tilney, I'm uncomfortable when I'm around him, so I bet he's a villain who secretly killed his wife or has her imprisoned in some distant bit of the house where no one goes or whatever. But no, he's just kind of a shithead. But he does then, you know, actively endanger her. Yeah. But... It's a bad thing to do to a person. Does she Does mm. she end up getting home safe? I'm concerned for her well-being. She, she does get home safe. And then it's, it's just really a wrap-up of the book. We get to see her very sensible family being like, that was very rude of him. That, I don't know what, what would possess him to do that at all. And our Catherine, she's so nice. She'd never offend anyone. How, where would he get in his head to just throw her out like that? What a horrible man. What a rude man. Awful. Does... 
Anyway, glad you're home safe. Get back to your embroidery. Does anyone end up engaged? Yes. So a week or so after she is back home, Henry arrives Mm -hmm. and he immediately like compliments the house, compliments Catherine's ma'am, mentions how lovely everything is. And oh, aren't the children so delightful? I might just take uh, a short visit to to pay my respects to the Allenses as well. And Catherine's mother isn't stupid. (laughs) So she's like... Catherine, would you walk over with Henry to the Allenses just in case he doesn't know the way? And Catherine's like, it's just over there. You can see the house. There aren't any trees in the oh way. Goodness. And her mom's like, Catherine. Be polite bring with the, young the guests. <laughs> Catherine. Yeah. Hmm. Did you learn anything so, in the city? So this is the point at which we get like Henry uh, reveals what happened with his dad you know henry had been away because he was he doesn't live at the house he's only able to visit occasionally when he came back when eleanor wrote to him you know he got the story from her and then he got the story from his dad and he also like got the story from town or whatever and pieces together what happened and his dad had like forbade them from talking to catherine ever again but henry had been like no, fuck you, dad. I love her. So he's ridden out here to be like, I have less money now because my dad's disinherited me, but I'm still a priest. Like I'm still a a vicar with my vicarage and we can live happily together. So would you marry me? And Catherine's delighted Mm -hmm. and it's great. And poor James, of course, keeps writing letters to her being like, Love is a lie. <laughs> Don't get married. Everything's terrible. But oh. it all wraps up quite nicely. And um, the only downside, of course, is that Catherine's very sensible parents demand that Henry's father approve of the marriage and also apologize for making Catherine travel very dangerously. Mm-hmm. That's sensible. Yeah, so it takes a few months for that to happen. But what happens is that Eleanor Mm -hmm. gets married because she, this whole time, despite us not hearing anything about it, had been secretly in love with a young man from her dad's regiment. But this man was tragically poor and her dad would never approve of the match. And Jane Austen does a very self-aware author thing where she's like, of course, you know, it is very bad writing to introduce new characters so close to the end of a novel. So I'm going to let you know that, you know, that laundry bill? That was his. In the first bit? That was the laundry bill for when he was staying in the spare room. And he, he and Eleanor had a secret engagement ever since that laundry bill. But only now has this young man become a lord. It was a red herring. So he's a lord now, which means Eleanor's very wealthy, which means her dad lets up a bit and is charitable enough to let Henry marry Catherine. And at the end of the day, they get married within a year of meeting. So, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. The whole book ends with Austin saying like, so at the end of the day, maybe it's good when parents are tyrannical and try to control their children's actions. And maybe it's better when children rebel from that and decide, fuck you, dad, I'm going to go marry the girl of my dreams. And uh, maybe it's good to 
have a little bit of gothic drama in your life. I just, I'm still, I'm still reeling from got married a year after meeting, which I know is not like mm-hmm. super uncommon. Even today, people do do that. But I'm also just like, no. <laughs> yeah, no, that's fair. That's fair. You need to know things about the person and a year is not enough time to learn them, especially since these people, they only spent like evenings together under supervision. It is for Jane Austen, like she usually has to have her characters get married reasonably fast because, you know, culture Mm -hmm. demands it. But she generally has them know each other a long time or get to know each other well. In Pride and Prejudice, there's the fact that Darcy helps Elizabeth with the whole Lydia thing. Not going to go into it. Anyone who's read the book knows what I mean. Um, But what we get from Henry is we get his sister really, really loving him. And we get Henry taking this dramatic action to tell his dad that you're out of line and it wasn't fair of you to treat this young woman this way. Okay. And we know he has a steady income. So all of these are the things that are like enough to to have them be a couple yes no i i know i know that the story justifies it and i know the time justifies it and that everything is like above the level and good but i'm still modern day upset that's it i'm just i'm just modern day upset at the concept because it's so fast it's so fast catherine's very sensible parents their only objection to the match is Oh, Henry, you know Catherine's no good at housework. But you know what? I suppose, you know, practice makes perfect. And, you know, it's fine. And if you're already aware, like you're not going into it thinking that she'll be good at housework. So it's it's actually okay. Like she's a little bit young to be married. Not necessarily in age because she's 18. But like by the time she gets married, she's 18. But, you know, in, in temperament, in, in worldliness, she's a little bit. She is not an old soul. That's the general book. It is hilarious. I want people to start saying young soul. I feel like there is a comparative phrase, right? Not that I can think of. I think a bit innocent might be it. Okay. Okay. But she is a bit innocent. Um, Sorry, go on. (laughs) You were summing up the books. I was summing up the book, but God, I wasn't going to go quick about it because I love this book. What's your opinion on it from my telling other than not liking the fast marriage? So I've never read like a proper classic going back that far. But when people talk about them, I'm always like, this sounds like so much fun. And like, I love watching the, the movie versions and everything. And I'm like, oh, this is revolutionary for like, it's. A lot of it plays with like social norms within the time, but also I can see the way in which like Austin is like, but I'm actually breaking the norms a little bit. And that's, and I really love that. Um, But maybe audiobook. I might, I might try it on audiobook. I know that you did this one on audiobook, but that you also physically read them. I find whenever I do try to read them, I find the language just a little bit intimidating. I will say you have the disadvantage of trying to read 
all of Jane Austen's work in one big book. That is true. I did try to do that. I enjoyed reading this as an audiobook. I like I mostly read it on walks around the park. Um, as you and any longtime listeners will know, I make a habit of reading a Jane Austen every December, starting in December. This year I continued it in through January because I hadn't read it fully. And you know, this is a good one. Um, I'm getting to the bottom of the pile. All I have left is Mansfield Park and Emma. I think this Northanger Abbey specifically might be a good intro to reading historical fiction of this kind because our main character doesn't know how anything works in society either. So so there's a lot of like, this is how this goes, um, but it doesn't feel as forced, I would assume. Yeah, you learn alongside her. Yeah. And, um, you know, a lot of what she's struggling with are very universal human issues of, you know, a friend who says she's your best friend but actually cares more about saving her own skin. And you know, a boy who likes you, but you kind of think he's laughing at you sometimes, that kind of thing, which translates well across time. And you just get to see how these interactions are situated in the different times. What are your highlights, Eva? Oh, my highlight is always Austin's writing. She's like so quick and sarcastic and mocking Mm -hmm. at the same time as having like very defined characters with like like her characters aren't all sarcastic and quick but her writing is and so you can see her really loving these characters at the same time as she's making fun of them and one thing she makes a lot of fun of in this book is like I said at the top she both makes fun of gothic stories Mm -hmm. for how they don't accurately portray people And then she also makes fun of people who are like, young women can't read these gothic novels or they will get terrible ideas in their heads. One thing she does, which I think is quite cool, is she she has her character read the kinds of novels she's making fun of. And she points out that like in these novels, like in these novels, these characters are heroines of gothic novels, but they also would never be caught dead reading a gothic Mm -hmm. novel because the author knows that people make fun of gothic novels yeah and in order for her character to be relatable and like you know a good girl she can't read the exact kind of book that the reader is currently reading why what why would you uh why would you like just not judge your readership if that was an option I think it's worth considering in the context of the fact that we are doing a YA podcast, yeah. right? Like, how often do characters in YA books read YA books? Um, I will just note that, like, how often do the characters in our books have time to sit down and read a book? Very because true. often, um, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna say <clears throat> this, and uh, no judgment to it, but the only book I can think of off the top of my head in which a character reads a book is uh, Twilight. Bella Swan sits down to read. I Actually, I think she reads some Jane Austen. And it's she boring. Does. It's boring. Um, mm-hmm. I will say, though, do you know what? You know what? Tuesdays. Tuesdays are just as bad. 
there's a whole plot point about the fact that Etha in that book uh, reads books and our main character, Adam, doesn't like to read that much. And it's something that Ghost, and she keeps giving him books to read and they are all young adult and fantasy and all that because that's the books that she kind of likes to read. And his ghost is like, why is she trying to change you when he when he tries to read them. So there you go. Two books in which in which the characters read, one in which it's terrible and the mm. other in which it gives um, ammunition to anxiety. Northanger Abbey takes <laughs> takes a third a third path where Catherine doesn't sit down and read mm-hmm. a book and tell you about it, but she references books and she discusses books with her friends books and like John Thorpe's like of course I would never read a book why would I ever read a book and if I did read a book why would I read all those terrible boring books those books are for girls I read books for men like histories and and law texts and and great battles that's what I read I would never read a book by Radcliffe uh while Henry the good guy who she ends up with at the end is like of course I read those books. They're fun. I also read other books, but this one's fun. See, I like that because I appreciate that YA is not like is not the 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 perfect fit for every reader, especially every adult reader, but I would not be able to be dating or possibly friends with someone who was like oh, you you read majority YA? That's a terrible choice. I hate that. I'm like it. Can, it might not yeah. be the genre for you, but it is a very good genre, and it covers lots of different issues and things. And also, it's possibly the most diverse genre. So you can go away. <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, this is one of our early signs that John Thorpe's terrible. Yeah. Um, my low light mm-hmm. though is that Henry is a bit patronizing. So in the same conversation as he admits to reading books, he like, I think Catherine says, describes something as nice and he goes on a whole tangent because again, language evolves over time where he's like, of course it's nice. Everything's nice. The view is nice. Your company's nice. It's so nice to be here with such nice young women. What a nice place this is. We're having a nice time. You know the word nice is meant to mean precise, and yet everyone's fucked with it so much that it is the least precise word in the world. Like, I can't abide people who use the word nice. And maybe, maybe in some ways these books are bad because they they make language less nice because they make it less precise because everyone's using it wrong. Literally. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes. (laughs) Um, And his sister's immediately like, Henry, cop on. Henry, you're meant to be making her like you. Henry, she's my friend. Henry, I want you to marry her. Henry, say sorry to all women right now. Uh, and Henry goes on like oh of course women are so smart women are so very smart that I don't think any woman ever has to use half of her brain because all women are so much smarter than men and Eleanor's like right fuck off anyway oh you've overdone it you've apologized too much yeah so so Henry's a bit of a shithead he he kind of wavers between like charmingly sarcastic and like patronizing annoying Mm -hmm. and 
the text points out a few times that he kind of likes that Catherine's dumb. Like, there's some times where Catherine feels bad about not knowing as much, but Austin will be like, luckily, Henry is the kind of young man who loves explaining things. Oh, no. So, like, they're happy together? Yeah. But, but it's... Henry, no. It's it's not ideal for the the modern the modern partner. But I can see how it works works out for them. And also, you know what? Maybe yeah, maybe I... some people are happy to have things explained to them by a person who likes explaining things. Maybe that that is a dynamic that works for some people. Yeah. And, you know, he, we get his sister existing as, like, another example of a young woman who doesn't appreciate this patronizing and, like, mocks him for it. And it's not like the novel upholds his views. It just upholds the fact that, like, people like this exist. Mm-hmm. They're not necessarily terrible, but they're kind of annoying. And you know what? Henry wouldn't be a good partner for me. Yeah. If I had someone that patronizing I wouldn't spend much time around them but he's all right for Catherine they have fun yeah they're they're working with it and at the end of the day Catherine isn't the quickest person in the world and maybe it is good that she's got a partner who's aware of that and doesn't mind Mm -hmm. it and can explain a couple of things as they go yep Yep. Uh, but that is the low light I would say is I do like their relationship but I do feel at certain points that Henry's like oh Catherine you didn't know that um unrelated I recently read a book in which I can't remember the main character's name now but she she suffers um an accident um and memory loss and she just keeps being like oh no everyone's gonna say oh Lucy to me in the way that they do when I make a mistake and I'm just like oh no Oh no, you poor thing. You're a grown adult with three children and people keep saying, oh, Lucy to you? That's horrible. That is horrible. You are a competent adult. I'm I'm so sensitive to being patronized against though that like it would kill me. So yeah, um, Henry Tilney, not perfect. But better than the alternatives. <laughs> Better than the alternative and good for Catherine, um, which leads me to my sidelight, which is Catherine's worldview. Mm-hmm. It's really charming. And I mean, it's really skillful of Austin, right? That she's able to incorporate her main character's worldview and then also her own level of awareness. Like we get Austin and we get Catherine and we get the things that are happening. And Catherine's worldview is just this amazing cocktail of innocent never left the farm young lassie who's just nice and a bit simple and like the most grotesque horrific monstrous horrors in the world like she's here like oh no I hope there aren't murderers in the alleyways because that would be terrifying (laughs) like she's goth she's just a stupid goth And so pure of heart. She should dump Henry and date you instead. Kira, no. (laughs) No, she's a kid. Are you implying that I'm the kind of person who likes to explain things? Because you also host this podcast. No, I'm saying that you're the kind of person who likes to date a dumb goth. 
because you are a dumb goth. And then we can have two dumb goths in one relationship. <sighs> That's actually so cute. Think <laughs> about it. Think about two idiot goths. Just two dumb goths. And they don't they don't know how anything works. Exactly. They'd set their house on fire with candles and like a minute but and that would so be part of the aesthetic off. so it would be fine maybe here living in a charred ruin and you'd be like you guys are really dedicated to this <laughs> and they'd be like yeah i fell asleep if you want to tell us about the dumb gods in your life tweet us oh, at forever ya <laughs> or or send us an Instagram DM or email us at for the number at or email us at for email us at forever podcast. You know I'm not cutting any of this out. <laughs> email us at foreverpod at gmail.com and that's for the number. And we will also be back in two weeks. If you want to give us some money for coffee and books, you can support us at Patreon at Patreon forward slash Forever YA Pod. And I will be back. <laughs> it's so funny. I'm just weak <laughs> at gods. I'm just weak at the thought of two lesbian gods loving each other and being really dumb. Because honestly, you could say any two lesbians who are dumb loving each other and I'd be like, that's adorable and I love them and I want them to be happy forever. <laughs> but also they're wearing corsets. <laughs> and they're just, they're Morticia and Gomez Adams. But lesbians. But you know, Gomez Adams is dumb goth representation. Oh, he a is. ridiculous amount. He is a dumb butch goth um okay if you missed some details in Kira's amazing <laughs> delivery of our social media details uh it's all going to be in the show notes anyway and if you want to keep track of what we'll be doing like what books we'll be covering soon yeah that social media is a really good way to keep in contact and if you don't have social media, Kira, what book are you doing next? Do we know? Um, I actually am undecided on my next book at the moment, but it will be fun and queer. That's cool. I'll let you know if that changes. But as of right now, it will be fun and queer. Yep. And my book might as well. My book might be subject to change as well because I have not yet started reading it. But my current aim for March is to read Knots and Crosses by Mallory Blackman a giant of the YA genre. Um, it's possibly one of the most well-known, you know, YA books by a British author of colour, mm -hmm. certainly of the 2000s, the noughties. So it's going to be kind of like when I read Knife of Never Letting Go by Patrick Ness, where I will be reacting to a very famous book that most people have read about 10 years too late. <laughs> this book came out in 2001. Okay, so 20 years too late. <laughs> 20 years too late is still an improvement on 200 years too late, which is this book. So, <laughs> Listen, there are a limited number of books that a human being can read in their lifetime. And there are an extraordinary amount of books that come into existence every day. So you got to be picky. <laughs> Forever Young Adult A 
Yeah, you can find us there at Forever YA Pod. And on Instagram at Forever YA Pod. You can also email us at Forever YA Pod. And if you really, really like what you're hearing, you can contribute to our Patreon, which you can find at Forever YA Pod. Also, don't forget to like and subscribe. Also, if you are listening on iTunes, please leave us a review. We love you. Talk to you in two weeks. Bye.